Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are continuing our journey through the Gospels. This is Gospels part 44. Last week we started Jesus' journey after the Sermon on the Mount, coming down off the mountain, and we're getting pictures of him putting those teachings of the kingdom into practice with his interactions with the people that he's meeting as he's traveling around the Galilee and we had a couple of examples of that. The first was the centurion man and asking Jesus to heal his servant, someone who's not Jewish, but it, showing extreme faith, this Culver Comer aspect of if a non-Jewish person has faith, Jesus is like, well, what about my the chosen people that I'm accustomed to? Like, where should your faith be? And then yeah. uh, we saw a story of a widowed woman whose firstborn son had died, and Jesus showing how God truly sees and like has compassion on one who is mourning and suffering and the miracle of resurrecting the son from the dead was on behalf of the mother which is just a really cool concept to think about that it was for his mother's sake maybe more so than for his sake alone yeah um and then we we left off with this story about John the Baptist sending word to Jesus kind of we were debating on where he was at. Uh, was he try- trying to confirm which Messiah Jesus was? Was he experiencing doubt? And Jesus left the message to him. It's like, don't let how I'm coming and making myself known to the people be a stone of offense and a, a form of stumbling for you, like to be a part of my kingdom. Yeah, and that it's, it's really good uh, recapping that, knowing that, okay, so... So we, Samuel and Paul, we actually left room for John to be struggling a little bit. In fact, I think you could say we emphasize that. I think it's an important part of the story. And then we also said, but wait, Jesus isn't done. He's got some things to say about John, and so that's what we're going to see right here, right now. So, shall we begin? Let's do it. All right, we're in Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 11. Also, Luke chapter 7, verses 24 to 28. I'm going to go ahead and read from Matthew. As they went away, that would be John's disciples. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Okay, so, so some good news and then some weirdness. I don't know. Let's break it down. Sam, you ready? Yeah. Uh, we got We got John's disciples going away. And, you know, this this was a little bit of a public kind of interaction, right? There's, there's a crowd around. They're talking to Jesus, asking questions. And so Jesus has some more to say about John. Despite Jesus' own impact, which obviously is the focus of everything we're doing, just know that at this time, John is still a well-known and highly impactful figure. And so... Jesus takes some time to praise him a little bit, especially now because some might have been troubled that he was in some way questioning the Christ. So 
his first question, what did you come to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Well, I think the inferred answer is, if so, you would have been greatly disappointed. John's ministry, you know, I mean, do you remember the location? It was on the reedy banks of the Jordan, but he was no reed bending in the wind. Now, what do I mean by that, right? If we talk about someone being a reed bending in the wind, you could think of that as someone who is weak or vacillating, or you might think of it as someone who is strong and willing to compromise, or, I mean, there's a number of ways to take it. But here's the thing. John was no weak, vacillating man with regard to obedience to God. And so, if you went out to see John, he pulled no punches. You have to repent. He wouldn't put up with anything. Now, being a bending reed can be a good thing if you're involved in, I don't know, some some form of justice or compassion or mercy or things like that. So, we can't just, it's not just black and white, bending reeds are bad, but being a bending reed is bad when it comes to compromising God's will. John the Baptist stood firm. We should stand firm. So that's the thing. But then he has a second question. Did you come to see a man dressed dressed in soft clothing? And if you did, well, you would have been greatly disappointed. John, (laughs) you remember this, Samuel, he was the opposite of comfort and ease, (laughs) splendor. I mean, John lived raw, plain. When I think of John, I think of itchiness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the was it camel hair? Is that what it was? Mm-hmm. Oh, man. So it, it, it's just trust and faithfulness. That was John's life. So Jesus is, in some sense, emphasizing his greatness as opposed to the so-called greatness of kings, etc. But here's the thing. I, I, I got to believe Jesus knows that his audience, the people listening to him right now, they already know this. But you get the sense that Jesus is making sure they don't mistakenly see it any other way. John was a prophet. And in fact, as it said in the text, he was more than a prophet. He was the one leading the way for Messiah. He was one of the prophets that the prophets prophesied about. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was, he was equal with the prophets, and yet they all prophesied about him. So, in a sense, he was greater than them. In fact, uh, let's see. Jesus, uh, Jesus says that he's uh, the one spoken of in Malachi 3.1. That's the reference that he uses there. Now, in Malachi, if you kept, kept reading, Malachi later identifies the man as Elijah. And that's kind of important because as we continue, Jesus is also going to identify John the Baptist as Elijah. Now, think of that symbolically. You'll see it below. Okay, we'll talk more about it then. But the point is that Jesus is going to great lengths to ensure that no one misunderstands the greatness of John and his role in this whole story. And then he finishes with like this kind of a crazy statement. Truly, I say to you, of all born of woman, uh, no one is greater than John. Now, Samuel, was John the Baptist born of a woman? Yes. Now, was Jesus born of a woman? Definitely. So did Jesus just say that John was greater than himself? I mean, face value, it's kind of, it would be possible to take it that way, but that doesn't seem likely. Yeah, we we know that that's not true, so what's going on here? Did Jesus make a mistake? Was Jesus lying? Again, I know we've made this joke a number of times in the past, but Samuel, hyperbole. You gotta live it. You gotta love it. It's just a part of the text. Jesus is simply being emphatic that John was a great man, among the greatest of men. But then he has, and this is the part I think that it can be confusion. Among those born of women, 
There has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So after all this work to build John up, you know, sort of make sure that no one's opinion of John was softening in some way, well, Jesus gets back to what I think of as like the real topic at hand, the, 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 the main focus, and that is the kingdom. As great as John is or was, as we're reading this story, here on earth as a man, the least in the kingdom will still be greater. Now, have you ever heard this, Samuel? <laughs> the worst Christian will be greater than the best Jew. I don't know if I have heard that, but ouch. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Things I hate. All right. So this is in no way saying, right? Because John was the greatest among born and women, right? But the least in the kingdom. This is not saying that the worst Christian will still be greater than the best Jew. That is stinking thinking. And it has all of its roots in replacement theology, supersessionism, whatever. And, and I mean, if you were going to take it that way, this would also lead you to the conclusion that John won't be in the kingdom. Is there any part of you that think that's right, Samuel? I'm really struggling to see how he could not be in there. Yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy to think that way. So do not walk away with that idea. Here's the thing. If you are in the kingdom, you will be greater because the level of knowledge, the level of wisdom, the level of understanding and prophecy and obedience and faithfulness and life, uh, it's a, the spirit even, all of those things will be so much greater during the kingdom that even the least involved in that is going to be greater than John here, kind of like, well, I was going to say pre-kingdom, but it's more like at the inception of the kingdom kind of a thing. And I would like to take a moment just to review, Samuel, how do you become the least in the kingdom? <laughs> um, I had to go look it up. I'm just asking. Oh, okay. I mean, it seems like walking away from prioritizing Torah in your life. Yeah, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 19. Why don't you read that for me? Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Well, there you go. There may be other ways. I don't know. But this much we know. If you... Relax one of the least of the commandments and teach others to do the same. You will indeed be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So that's one way. Don't do that. Now, as we continue, you know, I mentioned that Jesus was kind of getting off the topic of John and back to the kingdom. Mm -hmm. I just want to say this out loud. As we continue, what you're going to see is that for the most part, this is a generality. It's not, it's not that there can't be exceptions. For the most part, if Jesus is talking He's talking about the kingdom. If you get that in your head, you're going to understand a lot more scripture than you ever did before. So, yeah. anyway, uh, what do you got, Samuel? Oh, I just want to point out, and I know I sound like a broken record, but I just hope that it helps listeners as they're going through this. Again, I think that this is another example of Jesus painting that that Jewish concept of, I'm pronouncing it wrong, colvacomer or calvacomer, that... Uh, light and then strict aspect. If it's true in this case, then how much greater is it in this case that's going to have so much more importance and significance like later down the road? And Jesus is kind of saying like, as great as John is, and he is great, yeah. as true as that is, how much greater is it going to be for those in the kingdom who have the yeah. spirit, who like are gifted with resurrection and a new like restored body and everything. So, I mean, it's it's not a coincidence that Jesus is continuing that theme over and over in his teachings because that was common in his day and his listeners would have understood that. Yeah, yeah. I think we're going to have to change your middle name. Oh, yeah? It's Calvacomer. Yeah. 
It does have a, a decent ring to it. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. <laughs> he doesn't. He's he's not convinced. <laughs> no, I'm just excited to move on. Let's do that. <laughs> Matthew, we're going to continue in Matthew chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 12 through 15. It says this. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, put this up there with all of the great misunderstood verses in the Bible. What is with all this violence that they're talking about? I mean, Samuel, is God's, you know, sort of like ideal outlook for all of creation, is violence a part of it? No, I mean, creation before God stepped in the story was violent. It was chaos, and he he did the opposite of that. Yeah, God is trying to get rid of violence. So what is this talking about? Now, may as well be honest, there are all kinds of explanations for this verse. Some of them seem better than others. Some of them actually seem good. Some of them actually seem bad. And I mean, to be fair, we may as well just say, look, we may never really understand this in our life, but we're going to go ahead and give it a shot. And here's what, here's what I'm seeing, Samuel. Remember the context. This is about John the Baptist and his role as the waymaker for the Messiah King and his kingdom. So, John, now that he's in prison, I guess we could probably say he has done his job. He's, he has made a way for the kingdom. And, and you might even say John broke through or created an opening or a pathway, something like that, right? I'm, we're speaking you know, with imagery here, but you follow along. So John the Baptist does his thing. He, it's like he's opened a way to the kingdom. But though he's done it, that opening, uh, you might imagine that it's, it's very small. In the same way that we think of, well, the path is narrow and, and the gate, right? Narrow gate, that, that kind. So, so even whatever John has done, it's, it's small. And so if you want to follow John, and how do you do that, Samuel? What was his message? Repent. Yeah, if you want to follow John through this way that he's broken, well, then it's going to take real effort. And not only that, but there are those, whether created or, or we would call spiritual or whatever you want, there are those that don't want you to find your way through. And so looking at these words, uh, when it says, has suffered violence, and then the violent, uh, take it by force, that word violence, it's the same word, same root word, basically, but they each bring a slightly different sense to them. So when it says that the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, it's, it, it's probably better to think of it like it, it, it has been dominated in some way, or it has been constrained, right? And that's that image of that small hole or small gate or something like that. So suffering violence is there's, there's domination and constraint. The kingdom of heaven is constrained. And so we have to break through despite the odds. And, and that's that thing of the violent taking it by force. And so that violent is the way we think of it more in our regular normal English terms. But again, violence isn't God's way of going about anything. So this forceful violence, it's only against our own will and desire that would raise itself up above God's. And so it's going to sound weird, but you might say, th say things like, uh, we must be violently charitable, violently compassionate, and hospitable, kind, forgiving, just. So uh, 
you know, if if we could slip the word passionately in there, at least it'd be something we could relate to better, but that's not what the text says. But anyway, that's that idea from the days of John the Baptist until now, which notice it's a very short time period. It's only since John was on the scene until when Jesus is talking to these people right here. Very short window of time. The kingdom is actually coming within reach. It's, it, you, it, it's, it's touchable. It's right there. So anyway, that's the image that you got there. And then Jesus uses that. He continues talking about the prophets. All the prophets prophesied until John. Now people read that and they go, oh, well, there you go. There used to be prophets, and then John came along. Now there aren't anymore. Well, that's not what it's saying. John and his whole ministry, his role in the story, it's all the culmination of every kingdom expectation of all of the prophets leading up to him. So instead of looking at this as if it's some sort of break, oh, there were prophets, boom, they're gone, don't have them anymore. It's not that. And another way I've heard it is, well, there used to be prophets, but now we have the gospel. Okay, no, stop saying things like that. There's a continuation. When you see that John has fulfilled many of the things that the prophet spoke of, and by the way, this is also true for Jesus, it's like because it's fulfilling, it's, it's one is reinforcing the other. Uh, another way you could say it is that the validity of John and his ministry, the validity of Jesus and his ministry, the authority that comes from it. Okay, it doesn't come from ending all that has come before. It all, the, the, valid, the validity and the authority come in the fulfilling so that the story can actually continue according to the promises and predictions that were made. Everything that has come before if it brought it to an end, it would be a stupid story. It's it's building off of it. Like yeah. the, the Jewish story is all about building upon an original foundation. You yeah. rarely, if ever, see anything of like completely erasing away and starting like over. Exactly. There's so much more that God has promised that hasn't come to pass yet. What Jesus Jesus did 2,000 years ago was awesome, but it's not the end of the story. And so to think that it doesn't continue, you're just, you're ruining it. You're ruining the whole story. So anyway, sorry, soapbox for a moment. And then he does the bit about he is Elijah. And again, I know we've said this before, we're not supposed to take this literally. It's not as if John the Baptist was somehow uh, the reincarnation of Elijah or something like that. That's not what we're talking about. It's, it's symbolic. John is the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy, the messenger, the forerunner. What happens on Jesus' second, or well, his return, not his second return, (laughs) on his return, okay, we will wait and see how Elijah plays in that. But anyway, Mm -hmm. John the Baptist, it's symbolic here. And then this final thing, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The general idea is clear, I think, for anybody. It's it's like, I just said something important. I hope that you get it, or I hope that you got it. It's actually suggesting a little bit more than that, something more. If you can hear my voice, look deeper into what I am saying. Grapple, struggle for understanding. Work until you get it. If you've got ears to hear, hear. And what, is it, what does it always mean when we say hear back in first century Judaism, Samuel? To listen and obey. Yeah. So you got to go after it. You have to work for it. And it's totally worth the effort. That's the thing. Yeah. It's good. I want to go back really quickly to the kingdom suffering violence and the violent take it by force. Yeah. I... I hope I'm not imagining this from FFOZ, but don't they have a teaching that they they kind of illustrate this thing that Jesus is saying is kind of like there's this boundary wall that separates this one reality on one side, and then the kingdom is this other reality on the other, and 
like the transition is like the the busting through of that boundary in order to experience the other and like this concept of violence is getting more at like how John's role and then those surrounding and connected to him played a part in like the entirety of the nation and then like the whole world busting through that wall and like getting to experience the beginnings of the ushering of the kingdom. Yeah, yeah, we can experience the kingdom now, right? Yeah, so so it relates to the idea of on one hand, remember we've talked about this a lot previously in the podcast, the idea of the now and the not yet. The kingdom is. It it just is. But we're not living in its fullness or in its uh, fulfillment or whatever you want to say there. We're still living in this world, in this age. And so, just as we can uh, experience the kingdom through obedience to God's will, et cetera, et cetera, like, like living the part, we can live the kingdom now, that's, that feeds into the idea that you're talking about. And when FFOZ was teaching it, they actually used the example, something that I just wasn't really familiar with, so I definitely wasn't going to try to talk about it here. But the, the idea that when a, a let's just say a shepherd uh, had a, a flock of some kind and he was trying to protect them at night, and they weren't, they, they couldn't really make it back to, I don't know, whatever you call it, like their home base. So they were out in the fields or something. They would actually build up these little temporary walls with, uh, call it rocks and maybe some sticks, this, that, whatever, and, and keep, keep the, the flock or the herd in. And then when it was time to go out, there was this idea that the shepherd would, he would break one little part of that wall. And then as the sheep, let's just say they were sheep, they recognized that there was an opening, they would start to pour through it. And as they did, they would end up, you can easily see this in your mind, they would start knocking over a whole bunch of that wall. And so they were using that as a visual image for, yeah, it's like John the Baptist was that shepherd and he broke out a little piece of the wall and now sheep are starting to pour through, you know, symbolically, and so there you get that image of uh, the hev- kingdom of heaven suffering violence and the violent taking it by force. That's, that's a really cool picture. And it, it connects really well with Jesus talking about how the kingdom is going to start like a mustard seed or a little bit of leaven and some dough, but eventually yep. it's going to consume everything and like the sheep are busting out through that one hole, like into everything like fits so well with that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a good picture. I'm glad you brought it up. It's probably, I probably should have said it in the first place, but you know, whatever. You got to pick and choose. <laughs> yeah. No worries. All right. Yeah. So, so we go on and, and Luke inserts something very interesting right around here. And in fact, in the ESV, which we're using, it's in parentheses. So you can see that this is like a, an odd little insert. It's in Luke chapter seven, verses 29 and 30 says this. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, apparently the tax collectors weren't people, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Very interesting little uh, couple verses here. Number one, they declare God just, which is just a way of saying they were declaring God to be in the right. And, and maybe in a sense, acknowledging his righteousness. Okay, but right about what? Well, about the way that God was working out his plan, first through John, then through Jesus. How all were invited into this repentance about how it's a narrow gate to the kingdom and that it was worth trying to get through. I mean, all these things that we're talking about. So they're declaring, you know what? Good for God. That was right. Yeah, that sounds just like him. Now, the way it's written, though, I mean, it kind of appears a bit self-serving. They declared God just having been baptized with the baptism, right? <laughs> so, I mean, you know, 
if, if that's the horse that you've hitched your wagon to, and then you're declaring him to be the better horse, it always appears to be self-serving, right? There's a bigger picture here. This wasn't just that every level or status or class of person was welcomed. Even the lowest of the low. It it wasn't just that. That's an insufficient definition. It's that every person that truly repented and sought the kingdom, regardless of their status or their level level or their class or whatever, okay, they were welcomed. You see the difference? It's not just every person, regardless of status. It's every person that truly repents and seeks the kingdom regardless of status or class. Mm -hmm. So they recognized that as a viable form of justice that was consistent with God's character all along. And, I mean, we look back and we go, well, of course they were right. But the Pharisees, and let's be clear, it was just some of them. And the lawyers, let's be clear, it was just some of them. Well, they... They seem to have a little trouble recognizing their need for repentance. See, on one hand, they, we've said it, they're passionate keepers of the law, and this is, in many ways, a very good thing. But still, they just weren't getting it. They didn't comprehend the end of the law, the goal of the law, the justice, the compassion, the mercy, etc. And so they were kind of offended. In some sense that, you know, like the people that were to them the rabble could somehow now possibly be the recipients of God's favor. Everything Jesus was offering was for the Pharisees too, but they were blinded by their preconceived ideas and they were just being obstinate. That's tough. I mean, to have a group of people who know God's law so well, but they're struggling to see the intent and the goal behind it and how that affects how they treat other people that's just it's really hard for me to put myself into that that mode of thinking or their time i wish i could understand it more yeah and and it's super important that you you uh how should i say this uh pursue understanding that because what we're seeing in them <laughs> we are in no way immune to it it doesn't have to be like something as life important as salvation itself, but in so many areas, we can be just like them. So, you know, we, we have to take those people, their reactions, their role in this whole story as some warning for ourselves in our own lives. Just, yeah. just try to be aware. It's good. Mm-hmm. The Bible is brutally honest about people for sure and that's good yeah it's good all right uh this next one this is kind of a fun part so let's let's go on uh this is matthew chapter 11 verses 16 to 19 luke chapter 7 verses 31 to 35 i think i'm actually going to go ahead and stick with matthew on this one luke maybe uses a few more words but i kind of feel like matthew gets to the point better so let's do that he says this but to what shall i compare this generation. It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Okay, some of this probably seems a little bit like it makes sense, and then other parts, maybe not so much. True, Samuel? Definitely. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's a little weird. So let's break it down. First of all, (laughs) I love the way he starts. But to what shall I compare this generation? Samuel, I know you already. This is so classically Jewish. This is what every rabbi would say introducing a parable. Mm. It's great. And so if you ever wondered just how Jewish was Jesus, 
I don't know what's hundred <laughs> percent. He was it was great. Anyway, this is supposed to be. It's meant to be an easy to understand analogy of the fickle nature of those who are actually offended by Jesus, which that might take you back to what we just did, uh, was that last episode, Matthew eleven six, Luke mm-hmm. seven twenty three, whatever. So, so there's a couple of ways that you could, could interpret this little parable. And I'm saving the, what I like better for last. Maybe it'll stick in your head better. But, uh, you know, th- they're both good. The first one looks like this. The children that are playing the flute and singing the dirge, okay, they are the unconvinced scribes and Pharisee types. It's, it's as if they're saying, hey, you guys, Jesus and John, you're not playing along according to our expectations. Therefore, we refuse to listen to you, which is a way of saying we refuse to repent. A very reasonable way to look at that. Here's another one, and this one I like better. Instead, it's Jesus that's playing the flute. John, who is singing the dirge, and it's like saying that these unconvinced scribe and Pharisee types, they're refusing to respond to either invitation, which again is they're refusing to repent, right? They're, they're not hearing it. And so it's a, it's, it's a weird little picture, probably made a lot more sense to them back in the first century. But now you can, if you take that second one especially, you can understand how, okay, so you got one guy, he's approaching him in this manner and with this message, they didn't like that. So you got a different guy approaching them in a different manner with a different message. Okay, you know what? They didn't like that. Technically, it was the same message, I guess. But it shows that they, you can't please them. John has a demon. Jesus is a glutton and a drunkard. When you put them side by side, it's, it's super obvious that there was no pleasing these guys. Their complaint was perverse, just in its very essence. Taken together, you can see that they they weren't going to accept anyone. And unless, of course, they somehow fit their preconceived ideas, I guess. But then it gets wrapped up with this saying that wisdom is justified by her deeds. So uh, let's use some other, uh, let's say we talk about words or sayings or teachings, anything like that. When any of these things are shown to be wise, we know it because of what comes from them. You know, what, what they produce, whether it's, you know, particular acts or deeds, uh, that would be the children of that wisdom. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. Luke says it, wisdom is justified by all her children. So Jesus is voicing, I think, in some sense, his expectant trust that they, these unconvinced, inconvincible ones, they're going to be shown to be foolish by the fruit they produce, especially when it's compared to the fruit of those who've been convinced that John and Jesus are the real deal. And you might even say already at this moment, they've already shown it saying that John has a demon and calling Jesus a glutton and a drunkard, well, I mean, those are like the deeds, the acts, the children of their wisdom, and it shows that, you know what, they don't have any wisdom. Yeah. Any clearer now? (laughs) I think so, yeah. Um, I mean, I really think that that thing that you touched on with preconceived ideas that they were holding on to probably plays more into this than we may think or realize because yeah i mean they had every i would say that most of them had every reason to be right for them to focus on messiah son of david if that was their expectation because that is one part of the story but to let that be the only thing and then not entertain the messiah son of joseph that jesus was showing himself to be on this first you know visit with humanity um then they're like they're missing the whole point of 
what God was trying to tell them from the beginning. Um, yeah. And then I really like it. It almost takes me back to a lot of the Psalms. It's almost like this cause and effect thing that it's almost as if God is showing the the logical end to humans' actions, like what your stake is invested in and what that's going to produce. Like there's so many Psalms where like David is saying like, let the trap that they have set for me be uh, what actually ensnares them. Like let yeah. their evilness be their own undoing. Let that be their form of judgment. And in this case, it's kind of like you're saying that what they're saying and their stance is kind of showing what the reality is. And then someone who wants more seeks more, like they're obviously going to have a different reality because like their heart is going towards something much different than that. That's like their desires are different. Yeah. That's a good connection. I didn't think about it that way. That's, that's good. And I guess that makes perfect sense because the, the whole book is just filled with wisdom and there you go. This wisdom matches that wisdom. No, I'm not trying to undermine Jesus's mysterious or Jesus and God's how he they can work mysteriously in reality in our lives. But at the same time, this last thing with wisdom is justified by her deeds. Like it almost gives God this like very reasonableness to his character to be like, yeah. if you want <laughs> wisdom and truth and vitality and like peace on earth like and you're going to pursue that then like i'm going to come along with you in that or if you want destruction and chaos and you just want to make everyone's lives including your own around you worse then like that's going to be your reality it's like god's going to give you what you want yeah that goes back to what so many christians have said to me in this life be careful what you ask for of course, you don't know what you're asking, but yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Like that. All right, uh, another really good story. Oh, this is uh, this is good. Samuel, uh, Luke chapter seven, verses thirty-six through fifty. It's long. Whoa. Yeah, you ready? <laughs> you need me to tag you in? <laughs> yeah, maybe. All right, uh, here it is. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house. And reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, 
your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Any sense that we're going to finish on time tonight, Samuel? Nah. (laughs) All right. Let's get into it because there's so many good things here, but this doesn't have to be quite as uh, goofy as some people make it. Ready? So Jesus gets invited to eat at a Pharisee's home. Now, we've said it before, not all Pharisees had issues with Jesus. And this is a clear example. It's a Pharisee who wants Jesus in his home. That's, that's like honoring someone, okay? And I'm just pointing this out because we got this overwhelming tendency to group all of the Pharisees into a single group or image, but Jesus accepts this guy's invitation just like any other. But then this woman shows up and we're told uh, that she's a sinner and she's a, you know, certain sort of woman. The thing is, it isn't really explicit. But, you know, we, we could kind of guess maybe she's an adulterer, a prostitute, something like that. The funny thing is, she's obviously not invited, but she comes on in the house anyway. And she starts getting all handsy with the guest, right? <laughs> okay, in a G-rated TV7 kind of a way, all right? Yeah. But, I mean, just think about that. Imagine that this was your house and you had somebody over that you thought was awesome and then some strange woman just shows up and starts doing that, you'd probably be a little creeped out. You'd probably want her to go. But in the story, for whatever reason, they're not. The concern that they have is, how's Jesus going to respond? It's kind of weird, but that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, It makes mention of this alabaster flask of ointment. Uh, Just to throw this out there really fast, tidbit, uh, it's pretty costly. Uh, If we could... Now, this is a guess. We don't exactly know what she had, full, empty, but whatever. We can think of it in terms of like a year's wages kind of costly. So it's a big deal, whatever she had with her. And then notice that she was doing all of these things. All of it was about his feet, the weeping and the washing of his feet with the the wiping with her hair, anointing with the ointment. Okay, only the lowest of the low in society had to deal with someone else's feet. But she was doing all of this voluntarily. And so we can see in this, this unbelievable display of humility, submission, and I think even a continuation of repentance. And as we will see, we're, we're, we're going to have to break it down a little bit, but we're going to see she was loving much in return for having been forgiven much. Doesn't quite read that way, but we'll talk about it. Now, Simon, the Pharisee, not Simon the Apostle, Simon's watching all of this. His perspective is, you know, that uh, maybe this Jesus, I mean, the reason he invited him over, he probably thinks Jesus is a prophet or possibly even the prophet. And then he starts thinking, uh, what prophet is going to allow this sinful woman to carry on like this? A real prophet, and especially if it was the prophet, well, he would know who and what she is and never would allow that. At least that's what he thinks. But here's the thing, Samuel. Notice how the story kind of cleverly relates back to Luke chapter 7, verses 29 and 30. She is one of those sinners who heeded John's call to repentance. And then the question now becomes, which will Simon be? Is he going to be in that group or the other? Now, sorry, spoiler alert, we don't actually find out. We're not told in the story what happens to Simon. But anyway, it's important to see. She has already gone through some experience. It's the only way that the story makes sense. We'll keep going. Uh, See more of that. Jesus Okay, again, notice how Simon, uh, Jesus knows what Simon's thinking, whatever. He gets Simon's attention by declaring that he wants to say something. And notice that Simon responds with a willingness to hear, to learn, and he even calls Jesus by a respectful title. He calls him teacher. And then Jesus tells him this simple little parable. 
debtors, a couple of them, they've got these unpayable debts. And then the, the, the moral is that they are going to love the one that forgives them. And then, you know, sort of the additional bit of information is, oh yeah, and the one who is forgiven more loves more. Okay, so that's the basic story. Now, here's the important thing though, Samuel. If one of them loves more because he was forgiven more, does that make him better than the other guy? No, it just means their experience is different. Yeah, neither one is better than the other. It's just an observation. And it's important that we see that because it's going to relate back to Simon himself. Simon, at the very least, you know, he sort of gets the obvious meaning, the the, the surface meaning, the, the part about regular debt, real debt. But we know, because we've been going through the Gospels, already Jesus has a number of times tried to use debt as a metaphor for sin. And so, one who is forgiven more, not just in debt, but in sin, will also love more. So the same observation transfers or applies. So Jesus isn't making the point that if someone loves more because they have been forgiven more, that they're in some way better. This is just an objective observation of a truth. And it's important that we see that. Now, after the parable, Jesus then he, he's, he's going to try to use that. So he starts pointing out to Simon what is actually going on with this woman. And then what he's doing is using just, I would call them like common uh, fixtures of hospitality, things that were just normal in the first century Jewish culture, uh, generally speaking, kind of a big deal, hospitality. Okay, so offering, to, uh, offering water for somebody to wash their feet or giving someone a, a, a kiss for a greeting, offering anointing oil. This is all normal, common kind of stuff. The anointing oil part, okay, that was maybe a little over the top. That was pretty rare. But nonetheless, it was a thing. But it's also important to notice, though they were common, it wasn't like, you know, there, there was some sort of societal or cultural requirement. There was no demand. You shouldn't feel shame when any of those things were absent. And then we don't even know what's going on with Simon. I mean, if he's not one of the Pharisees that's against Jesus, well, then maybe the fact that he was a little bit inhospitable, I mean, it could have been because, you know, he just wasn't that kind of guy. He, he wasn't a hospitable person. That's a real thing. Or maybe he was just excited because he's got Jesus in his house and, you know, his mind's it's going on all these things and he's forgetting to do the simple, ordinary things. We don't know. The, the important thing is that we shouldn't read the story as if this is some sort of slapdown on Simon. Si uh, Jesus isn't saying, because you didn't bring me water, you're a loser. Because you didn't kiss me as a greeting, you're a you're, uh, uh, a stooge, you know what? Jesus is merely using these common social actions as representations of love, and this is relating back to the parable. Jesus is helping Simon understand her strange actions in light of common social ones. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. So what we could think of, if you, if you want to try to bring this forward, what could I relate to in modern times? Think of people who grew up in church and they experienced some sort of childhood salvation versus people who grew up, let's just say, in the world, and sometime as an adult, they got born again. Mm -hmm. They're going to have very different experiences. And that's, that's what we're seeing in this picture, right, between these two people. Now, now, okay, this is, an, oh, this is crazy, Samuel. Listen to this. Listen to how it's worded. Uh, she did all these things. You know, she was wiping the feet and the anointing oil. And it says, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Well, Samuel, <laughs> are we supposed to take that as if the story is saying that because she cried all over his feet and wiped some smelly frou-frou stuff on him, <laughs> uh, is, that's the reason she's now forgiven? 
Well, what was she crying for in the first place? It's a good question. I'm assuming she's uh, distraught over her own sin. Maybe we could say it that way. Or maybe she's uh, humbled by her forgiveness. I mean, right? But the thing is, you don't cry on somebody's feet and wipe smelly stuff on it to earn forgiveness. Of course you don't. That's just silly. She's doing these things because she's been forgiven. And as we said before, she's likely one of John's uh, converts or whatever the right is right word is there. Right? A paraphrase, if we could paraphrase this whole a little bit, it might say something like this. Simon, now that you've heard my parable about, you know, the debtors and the forgiveness, and now that you've seen her actions that are, they're, they're just love, you know, that, that's born out of thankfulness. Well, you can now see how she has been forgiven much. And we see it and we know it in that she loves much in return. And if you try to read the story some other way as if, you know, her forgiveness comes later, it just doesn't make sense. And so, you you know, you can fairly ask the question, well, then why does Jesus say your sins are forgiven? I mean, here you are, Paul, you're telling us it's already happened. Why would he say that? Well, I'm suggesting it can't be because this is the first she's ever going to hear it, the first that she's ever going to know of it. The, the rest of the story wouldn't make any sense if that were true. So then I just ask you, Samuel, imagine that you were this woman or, you know, the male equivalent somehow in the first century, whatever that means. If you were her, do you think that you could benefit from hearing it more than once? Oh, yeah. Do you think that you would actually crave hearing it more than once? Yeah, I almost feel like you need to hear it again. Yeah, you would. Most anyone would. Of course, it's that reinforcement. It's the encouragement. The end of this story kind of suggests that Jesus might be saying it for, you know, what we just said, reinforcement, encouraging. But he also might be saying it just for the benefit of the others in the house, like Simon and the others that we didn't know were there until the end of the story. See, Jesus, as we've seen, he's not afraid to stir the pot. And they respond predictably. What? This guy forgives sin? What? What is up with that? So, you know, maybe that's why he says it. But then he also, and this is so good, he adds, your faith has saved you. Whoa, that flies in the face of a whole bunch of what Christians say nowadays, right? Yeah. Uh, but but listen, this is one of the most important nuggets to hold on to when you're reading your New Testament scriptures, okay? When you see the word faith, and in the Greek, that's the word pistis, you got to remember that this isn't just faith as in like, you know, believing and trusting, some sort of mental assent kind of a thing. It's also faithfulness. That's the idea of acting on that belief and trust. And what does that look like? It looks like repentance, obedience, etc. Her willingness to abandon her life of sin was the catalyst for her salvation. <laughs> I know there's a lot of people They do not like what I just said. Mm. But if I could just point out, Jesus said it, not me. Now, we all know Jesus is the one who ultimately accomplished the effective work of salvation. But she had her part. This was her part. I'm sorry, it's important that you see that. In these stories, this is real Jesus stuff right here. Now, one final little point. It is not necessary that we walk away from this story thinking that Simon is unrepentant, unforgiven, unsaved, whatever. It could be that he's the one who's been forgiven little. And so it doesn't feel like a big deal for him. Now, we also need to remember that this is, of course, based on Simon's perception. So if he truly understood the full measure of his debt, 
he would have been acting just like that woman. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, we don't know the end of Simon the Pharisee's story, so don't don't put him in a box. Could have had a happy ending, for all we know. Yeah, and I'd just like to point out that that aspect of there being some form of a catalyst in someone's life that leads to God meeting them or having an experience with God or God enacting on their behalf, that's not a new idea. I mean, you can go all the way back to the the founder of the Jewish faith, Abram, and if you dig into the extra-biblical text, namely the Midrash, they talk about how God looked down and saw Avram and how he was practicing like this foundational aspect of God's character as like radical hospitality and generosity with how he was taking care of Yes. You know, basically a widowed woman um, who didn't have any way of providing for herself and him coming into her life to marry her. And then God's like, that's somebody I can partner with. So, yeah, it's not uh, some crazy notion like it, Jesus is affirming what has already been established, just like what we said earlier that with the John thing, um, like we're building on foundations that are already there. Yeah. Oh, boy. I you know I know that you long to do something back in the first five books you know all that and I can only agree with you and the Abraham story it's so much more than people give it credit for there's so much there and you're absolutely right when we say that we are we are included in God's family we are saved by faith when we say those kinds of things we mean a faith like Abraham because supposedly we're attaching to the promises of Abraham. And Abraham's faith, it was active and alive. It wasn't just between his ears. Mm-hmm. And I, just a couple other things. We're already over time, so what does it really matter? But <laughs> <laughs> That's um, right. I just wanted to say, I think it was pretty powerful, and I think a lot of us needed to hear that aspect of the story of Jesus telling this woman again like the woman needed to hear again that she was forgiven because i think that's something that all of us probably struggle with more than we want to admit yeah and i don't know it's kind of speaking to me and like challenging to me to you know jesus saying like you know this forgiveness is something that you can have and you can experience and it might already be a reality for you like if you continue to embrace it and stuff so yeah. um, i think there's some real real truth in that yeah sweet stuff yeah and then the last thing and i don't want this to cause too much of a rabbit trail i love the way that you painted the story with the woman and how she had already previously experienced forgiveness and how that impacts the way that she was behaving in simon's house but what if there is a listener who is thinking about well Let's just say this woman somehow heard the story of the paralytic and Jesus telling him, like, son, I tell you, your sins are forgiven. Like, is it, is it easier for someone to say, get up, take your mat and walk or say, you know, um, that your sins are forgiven. And then he says, so that you may know that the son of man has the authority to forgive sins. I tell you, get up and walk. And she's like, she she has this burden, this thing that she wants gone from her life to start fresh and she knows about this Jesus and like she's desperate uh, to be able to experience that and she you know does the equivalent of the guys carrying the mat through the roof down to meet Jesus she barges into Mm. a complete stranger's house to be able to have this moment with Jesus like how can we help someone on that side of the picture with this story too. Yeah, and that's a great picture. And let me let me just say this much first. Number one, that's a beautiful way to see the story. I see nothing wrong with reading the story that way. I I totally get it, but I personally had my own little struggle with this. What well, th- this doesn't make sense. How is this working? How can this be so? Here was the part that was important to me. Jesus is trying to show that one who has been forgiven much loves much. 
And then he's using this woman as the example of one who is loving much. Therefore, she has been forgiven much. Mm. So for me, and, and I'm not saying it has to be this way, and if somebody sees it the other way and it's more beautiful to them, by all means, go ahead. But for me, I see that as, look, he's laying out the timeline. And it just gets weird because he follows it with your sins are forgiven. But how is she the one who's loving much in his parable example if she hasn't been forgiven yet? Mm-hmm. It's And again, it, there's plenty of room for people to think and interpret and, and see these stories differently. That's all great. But that's how I work that out. No, I'm glad that you rephrase it in that way to kind of get to the heart of what caused this interpretation um, of the story. Thank you for for, uh, nailing it down for us. Yeah, well, if that worked, you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) All right, anything else? No, I I think uh, as much as I'd like to keep wrestling with stuff, we should probably let, let the peeps go. Well, we'll just end the podcast here, and then we'll keep talking after. (laughs) Now, let's cut this thing off. It's all done, Samuel. Okie dokie. Thanks for listening to the Okie dokie Most podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Please be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about this podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Talk to you next week.